Thanks again for listening to the free version of the VBPH Sermon Podcast, where we post sermons on Mondays, Wednesdays, Fridays, and Sundays. We also have a premium version of this podcast, which posts sermons and interviews every single day of the week. So why would you want to subscribe? I'm glad you asked. I have five reasons for you. Number one, on the premium version, we post full versions of Testimony Tuesday, Pastor Campbell Thursday, and Study Day Saturday. If you'd like to hear those episodes, then subscribe now. Reason number two, uninterrupted listening. We remove all ads and all extraneous content from our premium feed. Reason number three, premium episodes always release six hours earlier than the free version. If you're an early bird, it's a great reason to subscribe. Number four, our subscribers will gain access to our sermon chat group on WhatsApp, where we interact directly with listeners around the globe. If you'd like to chat with other premium subscribers, subscribe today. And finally, every dollar we raise goes to world evangelism. This is the best reason to subscribe because you are helping us launch churches all around the world. We don't put one dime in our pockets. Everything that we raise from this podcast will go directly to Thursday night of Chandler Conference. So please subscribe today by using the links in the show notes below. Thanks. Welcome to the VBPH Sermon Podcast. This week, we press pause on our normal program schedule to bring you select sermons from the recent Bible conference in Tucson, Arizona, pastored by Harold Warner. We'll return to our normal schedule next week. Until then, may these be an encouragement to you. God bless. Amen. Thank you very, very much. I told uh, Pastor Warner at break that I'm glad he didn't wait until we died before we hear uh, from these great young pastors. I was talking about Chris Burton's sermon to someone, and he said, yeah, when he got saved, I thought he had mental problems because he couldn't carry on a very good conversation. Well, he don't have no mental problems now. Amen. And uh, Josh Scribner's message, fantastic, uh, very inspiring. These men are full of the Holy Ghost and full of revelation, and they have a lot to say, and I can't wait to see what's happening in the rest of the conference this week. Little decisions that make a big difference. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel 11. I want to minister from there in a moment. One of the more entertaining books I've read recently was called Lombardi and Landry about these two Hall of Fame football coaches. I didn't realize that they were from the same mother church. They were both coaches on the staff of the New York Giants during the 50s. Vince Lombardi was the offensive coordinator and Tom Landry was the defensive coordinator. And so it was while they were on staff there that they developed their skills and their talents and their abilities. And then, of course, they both went on to uh, have Hall of Fame uh, head football coaching careers. Lombardi was uh, the coach from 1959 to 1967 of the Green Bay Packers, and Landry was coach of the Dallas Cowboys 
uh, for 28 years. In the uh, beginning part of the book, the book has a lot of anecdotes about these two men. And that's what fascinated me. But in the beginning of the book, there's a great anecdote about Tom Landry. And uh, the comment alongside of it was that it was something that served him well for the rest of his life. He learned early in life uh, that the littlest decisions make the biggest difference. I'll read right from the book a few sentences. Tom Landry's overall intelligence had gained him entrance in 1943 at the age of 19 to pre-flight school in San Antonio, Texas, followed by pilot training and then assignment to a bomber crew in the 8th Air Force. So at 20 years old, he's piloting a B-24 bomber over missions in Europe during World War II. His quick mind and analytical brain eventually saved his life and that of his entire crew. Flying out of Ipswich, England, on one of his 30 missions over German factories and refineries, five more missions than the Army required before discharge, his plane suddenly began sputtering and losing altitude over German-held Belgium on the return flight. The plane appeared to have run out of fuel and had sunk to a thousand feet and was plummeting rapidly further amid heavy, among, uh, amid heavy flak fire. The pilot ordered the crew to bail out. Uh, Landry, Tom Landry was the co-pilot on this mission. But Landry, the co-pilot, as he is leaving the cockpit to get ready to bail out, had a thought. He looked over his shoulder, working on a hunch, he adjusted the fuel mixture. The engines immediately sputtered and coughed their way to life. The plane got back to England. The whole crew was saved from death or at the very least internment in a prisoner of war camp. He said afterwards, I just realized that something might be wrong with the fuel mixture. I wasn't sure. It just came to me that the mixture might be off. It was just one of those things. Well, something it was. Those 11 crewmen were able to go back home after the war, have families, have children, build businesses, and move on with life. And that's not a bad maxim for life. Don't dismiss the hunches, the little decisions that can make the biggest difference down the road. What seems like a little, small, insignificant decision can have huge impact in a person's life. And I want to use two texts this morning for, uh, uh, for two scriptures, rather, two different books for my text. First is Second Samuel. I'll read that in a moment. Uh, and then we're going to turn to Acts 9 and read about the conversion, a little bit of the conversion of the Apostle Paul. But let's begin in 2 Samuel. These seem like two completely different, disjointed, disconnected. Uh, but I can assure you, I don't have mental problems. I'm going to put it all together for you. Um, and it'll make sense, I hope. 2 Samuel 11.1. 1. It happened in the spring of year, at the time when kings go out to battle. That's what they do. David sent Joab 
and his servants with him in all Israel. And they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Little decisions that make a big difference. And then in Acts 9, this is part of the story of the Apostle Paul's conversion. Verse 3, as Saul of Tarsus journeyed, he came near Damascus and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. So Saul, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said, arise and go. Little decisions that make a big difference. First of all, this morning, and this is not a new premise for us to consider, you are the sum total of the choices you have made in your life thus far. It will get you nowhere in life when you make excuses or blame others for the position that you're in now. The position that you're in now is the consequence of choices. Uh, Hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions uh, over a lifetime uh, of decisions that you have made one after the other after the other. Uh, And many, many of those decisions at the time seem so very small. This is a very basic premise of life. It's not what happens to you. It's how you choose to respond and how you choose to react. And of course, the decisions, most of them are very common, everyday decisions, the things that we choose to do, how we decide we're going to react on a daily basis. Or maybe every once in a while, a crisis may come your way, and the choices you make there certainly can have a major impact impact in your life. There will be moments of temptation, moments of weakness where the devil makes a move to try to exploit a weakness in your life, seasons of offense. Sometimes it's not just one offense that hurts you, but it's a number of things that happen from different sources, perhaps, of offense and accusation and betrayals that occur in your life. It's decisions that we make about money, about relationships, what we're going to spend time I'm thinking about. Those are choices that we make. Someone said whether you're making breakfast or deciding what to wear in the morning, your brain is making upward of 35,000 decisions a day. According to Eva Krakow, lecturer at the University of Leicester in the United Kingdom, and I read a number of uh, things that They usually cited that number, 35,000 decisions a day. It seems almost incomprehensible. Up to 90% of our decisions are what they say unconscious decisions, default, patterns of behavior that don't require a lot of calculation or a lot of deep thought. Most of the decisions, many of the decisions that we make, what to eat, what to wear, what restaurant to go to uh, are default patterns of behavior, uh, and many of those decisions uh, don't matter a lot uh, uh, in the long term and how life plays out, uh, but many of the decisions you are making uh, that seem small to you right now are having a greater impact than you realize. 
Today's decisions, no matter how small you think they are, are going to come home to roost. Consider what's happening in our text. There's something called the cascading effect. This refers to decisions that you make that result in another and another and another and another and another in an ever outflow of a cascading impact and event and event one decision one event leads to another it's defined this way a cascading effect is an unforeseen chain of events unforeseen chain of events that occurs when an event in a system has a negative impact on another related systems cascading effects can occur in, uh, in conventional power grids, for example, uh, when lines are overloaded and they trip another line and then another and then another. Consider David. He stayed at the time of year when kings go out to battle. That's a definitive statement about what David should have been doing. At the time of year, he stays home from battle. That could have been inconsequential. But it wasn't, was it? He sleeps all day. The Bible says he gets up in the evening, goes up on the roof. These are all decisions, little tiny decisions. Uh, the cascading effect, uh, because he stayed home from battle, he's not attending to his duty uh, as the leader. Goes on the roof. Sees Bathsheba bathing, makes a further decision to lust after her. He acts on that. He calls for her, commits adultery. She gets pregnant. This is what I mean by a cascading effect. It's one after the other after the other, and they're all related. Then he makes a decision to try and cover it up. That doesn't work. And so he tries again, and that fails. And then he decides to hatch a plot to have her husband killed in battle. After he gets word that it has happened, he marries Bathsheba. And of course, in the beginning part of his relationship with Bathsheba and his marriage, there's no repentance. And so we can probably calculate maybe 30 or 40 or 50 little decisions that came on the heels of at the time when kings go out to battle, David remained in Jerusalem. All the above are choices and decisions. Some were instinctual, driven by sin. Others plotted, others planned, others he had to think about. But his decision to remain in Jerusalem set him on a destructive course in his life. The cascading effect. Not every decision you make brings a consequence like that. Certainly David wouldn't have thought uh, that this is going to be a, a turning point in my life. From this point on, there's going to be a curse because uh, I decided to remain in Jerusalem. Uh, and the decisions that I made in the aftermath of that, because of that, uh, there's going to be a curse uh, that is going to play out in my life. Though I may repent, uh, though I may get my heart right, uh, I've loosed something uh, into my family that is going to play out for generations. When he's finally called to account by the prophet Nathan. Nathan pronounces in 2 Samuel 12, 10, Now therefore the sword shall never depart 
from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Why? Because when kings go out to battle, David decided to stay in Jerusalem. He has got Joab and he's got a number of generals and good strong leaders. What do I have to go for? But listen, you enter into real danger when you're not attending to your duty as a called man of God, as a Christian and as a believer. Stay home from church. Not go to prayer, not pick up your Bible for daily devotional Bible reading. Little decisions don't seem to be a big deal. I'm no different to tomorrow than I am today if I don't go to prayer. The question I want to ask you and challenge you with, what direction are your decisions taking you this morning? One bad decision can be sufficient to weaken your resolve and lead to further compromise. You're tampering. Be careful when you start tampering with the integrity of your spiritual life. Your spiritual life has demands in order for you to remain healthy and alert and strong and faithful and diligent and able to resist temptation and make right decisions. Your spiritual life has an integrity that must be maintained. And if you're making decisions that tamper with that, you're going to head in a wrong direction in your life. Let's look at the other side of the coin. Saul of Tarsus is wicked. He's a very evil man. He's persecuting the church. All the while he thinks he's serving God. The Bible says in Acts 8, but Saul began ravaging the church and assaulting believers, entering house after house uh, and dragging off men and women and putting them uh, into prison. Uh, This is one wicked man driven uh, by a demonic rage uh, to try to destroy the church in its early stages. Uh, In Acts 22, uh, when uh, he's testifying now years later, he said, I persecuted this way to the death. Binding and delivering into prisons uh, both men and women. Imagine what the scene of that would have been like as they're breaking down doors, going into homes, breaking up church services, uh, and then arresting people, tying them up uh, and taking them into prison. Acts 26 testifying again. He said, this I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, uh, having received authority from the chief priests. Uh, And when they were put to death, uh, I cast my vote against them. So there was more than just Stephen in Acts chapter 7. Uh, There were numerous uh, believers uh, that he was responsible for their death uh, and for their martyrdom. Uh, And he says, I punished them often in every synagogue. I compelled them to blast And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In Acts chapter 9, in our text, he's on his way to Damascus. Damascus is 195 miles from Jerusalem. Today, that's a three-hour drive, two, three, four-hour, depending on how much you're willing to break the speed limit, but it's a few hours. Then, it was an arduous, very long journey of 195 miles to further persecute the church. He is motivated. He is driven by a hellish rage, and he's on his way to persecute the church. We can say at this stage, Saul of Tarsus is one of the most wicked and evil men that's described in the Bible. 
One decision, one altar call changes everything. Imagine where Saul of Tarsus is headed. Imagine what judgment would have been like for this man as the decisions that he's making are cascading one after the other after the other. What if he had died in his sins and then stood before God? Imagine what judgment would have been like for Saul of Tarsus. But all of that changes with one decision. One minute, he's heading in one direction, and the next, he's heading in another direction. Verse 8 says, then Saul arose, and he went to the city, and he ends up meeting Ananias, getting filled with the Holy Ghost, getting baptized, and the rest, as they say, is history. One of the most radical conversions recorded in the Bible At the beginning of Acts chapter 9, he's persecuting the church. By the end of the chapter, he's preaching in the synagogue in verse 20. In Acts chapter 13, he enters into the first of his missionary journeys. He preached in 40 different cities where there were churches. So much of what he laid out for us to read today, we can preach on. It lays out Christianity, doctrine, philosophy, ministry, how to handle problems, how to overcome temptation. And then when he's wandering around Turkey, he gets the Macedonian call and he goes into Western Europe and he begins to preach the gospel there. And I know getting saved is a, is a big decision, but to a lot of people, it's a little decision worthy of dismissing. I mean, how many times do we have church or go on an outreach? We preach, we plead with people, we communicate the love of Jesus Christ and the destructive power of sin, and they dismiss it as some arbitrary, nothing, not important, irrelevant decision. But the Apostle Paul, this one decision changed the world. Consider Pastor Warner, since this is the 50th anniversary of the anniversary of the church, I wanted to put this in my message. The quality of Pastor Warner's life and the quality of his ministry is the result of a lot of little decisions that were made and are being made along the day, along the way. He experienced his catastrophic accident on April 30th of 1973. He had only been married a matter of a few months. He spent three months in the hospital, got out at the end of July, and then August was outpatient. And during that outpatient uh, uh, experience during the month of August, uh, they're going to try to channel Pastor Warner, Harold Warner then, uh, uh, into a direction uh, that would be most conducive considering his now handicap of being in a wheelchair. And so they gave him a battery of tests and interviews. They got him to try his hand at crafts. They gave him, I think he told me, a 200-question long questionnaire. And the conclusion at the end of the questionnaire, and what they told him was, you are not really suited for the ministry anymore. You're going to have to change direction. This picture here is a picture of a leather belt that Pastor Warner made. 
They got him to do these crafts. There it is right here. They got him to do these crafts. And I remember him mentioning this to me. And I was with uh, Pastor Warner's mother in March. We went to visit her, Renee and I, uh, and Jerry and Jenny, my daughter and son-in-law, went to visit her. And so we were talking about Pastor Warner. I wanted to know what kind of a radical kid he was, how hard, how difficult, how challenging. Uh, And I asked her about the accident and how that impacted her, how they found out about it. Uh, And I mentioned uh, uh, this leather belt to her. She said, yes, he made a leather belt right after his accident. They were uh, giving him these crafts to do to see if he'd get interested in it. And he sent me the leather belt. And sometime afterward, she went and looked for it. I mean, this goes back uh, uh, 50 years now. Uh, She went to look for that leather belt, uh, and then she took a picture of it. And that's the picture, and she sent it to me. You are no longer suited to preach the gospel. This needs to be your choice. Something other than preaching the gospel. But he said no to leather belts. Amen. And he said yes to this. That doesn't look like someone that's not suited to preach the gospel, does it? But as he's lying face down, paralyzed, can no longer walk, crown bolted to his head with weights uh, to keep his back taut, uh, he's saying no to anything other than preaching, uh, and yes, uh, this is not going to rob me of my calling. Uh, You and I are the product uh, of decisions that Pastor Warner made along the way. Now, let me talk about when your decisions take you south. Lots of things factor into the decisions that you make in your life. You make decisions when you're angry. You make decisions when you're happy. You make decisions when you're frustrated. Lots of things factor into the choices we make. What you're doing today, as David learned and as we learned from his this account, what you're going, what you're doing today will determine the choices you make tomorrow. And the choices you make made yesterday are fueling the choices you're making today. David knew the commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. You knew about that one, right, David? You know the commandments. You were a man after God's own heart. You've already written numerous psalms about the mercy, the goodness, the love, the grace, the favor of God. You knew about that. My question, and what I began to ponder and think about with this text, what was going on in his life in the run-up? To the time when kings go out to battle, David tarried in Jerusalem. He's obviously in a weakened position. Brought about, I suggest, by a lot of little decisions that put him in that weakened position. What kind of decisions has David been making in the run-up to our text when it's time to go out to battle and he doesn't go? 
That's just another decision, I think, in a pattern previous to that that led up to that. The issue with our bad decisions is not opportunity. People say to me all the time, well, Pastor, what did you expect me to do? Of course I'm upset. Of course I'm angry. Of course I threw that picture across the room. Of course I quit coming to church. Of course I don't want to forgive this individual and I want to continue to. What did you expect me to do? It's not the issue. The issue is not opportunity. It's the condition of your heart when opportunity presents itself. Not everyone would have done what David did. Now, if your heart was really right, you would have been out with the troops at the time of year when kings go out to battle. But even if that wasn't the case, let's just say he's on the roof. And he looks down at a lower roof and sees this beautiful woman bathing. What he should have done is run from that scene, turn your head away, get into your room and start speaking in tongues. He doesn't do that because of the cascading effect. This wasn't the first bad decision. It couldn't have been. It doesn't work that way. At the time, you know, praying, writing psalms all day, and then the call comes to go out to battle. No, no, I don't believe that's how it played out. It's probably a season-long pattern of decisions that begin to deteriorate the integrity of his spiritual life. Did he spend time with God that particular day when he saw Bathsheba in the evening? Did he go to prayer meeting that morning? Did he write any psalms about the goodness of God? Did he meditate on the things of God like he talks about doing? Was this one of the days when he's talking to God morning, noon, and night, which is what he said in the psalms that he does? He had to let go of obedience in the little areas. That's why when it gets to our text and it says that at the time of year when kings go out to battle, it's not a big deal. It's a little decision, along with a lot of other little decisions that haven't affected me. I don't notice anything different in my life. By the time we get to our text, I think we can assume something's already broken in him. Not doing what he should have been doing. What else did he let go of? Let me talk about reversing the cascading effect. So things are going one way in David's life. Pattern of the deteriorating condition of the integrity of his spiritual life. Things are going one way in his life. And his story and the story of Saul of Tarsus teaches something very powerful that can play out at this altar this morning. And that is you can reverse the cascading effect that has been set in motion by the compromised decisions you've been making. And you can immediately start sending everything the other way. you got to put a stop to the pattern. And it's not like touching a hot stove where there's an immediate consequence and you say, I'm never doing that again. Not every bad decision is the equivalent of touching a hot stove. Some of the compromising decisions that we make bring no immediate consequence. 
Many of the choices that David was making, uh, including the one in our text, uh, at the time of year when kings go out to battle, David remained in Jerusalem. Uh, he thought nothing of it. He didn't think I'm disobeying God. He didn't think I'm not performing my duty. He didn't think I'm headed toward a huge trap. <laughs> he didn't think that at all. He's got control. After nearly a year, or maybe around a year, David finally repents. Second Samuel twelve thirteen, David said to Nathan, I have sinned. About time you said that, David. <laughs> I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin and you shall not die. David gets his heart right. He reverses his course in the midst of a very bad situation. After his repentance, the baby that Bathsheba got pregnant with dies. And by this time, he's married her because he's already had her husband killed in battle. It's not exactly a formula and a good foundation for a marriage, what David has done here. But he repents. And the tide turns, even though consequences are going to play out. The tide begins to turn. Second Samuel, after the baby dies, then David comforted Bathsheba. The, to me, this is one of the most profound and powerful demonstration of God's redemptive grace and love and mercy, as Pastor Warner spoke of so wonderfully last night. David, Second Samuel twelve twenty four. then David comforted Bathsheba went into her, lay with her. She bore a son, called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved Solomon. Whoa. David did that. One decision. I've sinned. That's all it takes at this altar. You've been compromising, haven't been faithful, haven't been attending to the duty of what it means to be a Christian, to be a man of God, to be a pastor or a pastor's wife. It's a picture of a redemptive God at work in the face of the cascading effect of misguided decisions. God's able to pick up the pieces if you'll repent. God's able to put back and rebuild the integrity of your spiritual life if you will reverse the pattern. And this happened often in the Bible. Second Chronicles 33 Manasseh, wicked king for over 50 years. He had a long reign. And the Bible says in 2 Chronicles 33, and the Lord spoke to Manasseh, wouldn't listen. Therefore the Lord brought upon them the captains of the army of the kings of Assyria, took Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze fetters, and hauled him off to Jerusalem, I mean to Babylon. The cascading effect of his decisions are now coming home to Rose. He's been a powerful king for decades, a very long reign, and no consequences seem to be dropping on him until God has had enough. And you ought to pray that God will have enough sometimes of the pattern of decisions that we're making. And then the reversal comes. Second Chronicles 33, 12, now when Manasseh was in affliction, sometimes that's what it takes. He implored the Lord, 
humbled himself before the God of his fathers, prayed, and, and the Lord received his entreaty, heard his supplication, brought him back to Jerusalem, into his kingdom, and Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. One decision reversed the destructive pattern that was taking place in his life. And maybe there'll be enough conviction here today. Maybe consequences haven't yet arrived on your doorstep. But the pattern of decisions is in place that is invariably going to lead to some kind of a crisis that the devil is going to take advantage of. You may not know you're headed toward that, but the devil certainly does. And he knows how to strategize like he did with David to bring a downfall. Manasseh had a son named Ammon. When Manasseh died, Ammon reigned. He had a very short two-year reign. He was a wicked man, and he dies. Ammon had a son named Josiah. And Josiah, the Bible says, did what was right in the sight of the Lord. And walked in the ways of his father David and did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. Where did Josiah learn that? Not from his father. He saw the wickedness of his grandfather hauled off into captivity. Repentance brought back and restored. This had an impact on Josiah. It's part of the cascading effect of Manasseh's repentance. And the consequences of how that played out in someone close to him. Saul of Tarsus comes from the opposite direction. He begins wicked, religious, self-righteous, but not saved. And this is encouraging because it tells us that the most vile sinner, the most wicked individual, the unbeliever, the one who has blown up their life, blown up their marriage, destroyed everyone close to them, hurt individuals, caused pain and affliction for others. He's making one bad decision after another after another that's leading to an inevitable judgment before God and eternity in hell. But he makes one decision that reverses it all. Ephesians, I love Ephesians 2, 1, and he and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. One decision is sufficient to produce a resurrection in your life from death to life, from darkness to light. One decision can set all of that in motion. I hope there's enough conviction here to get you to the altar before a Bathsheba incident occurs or before Manasseh has to be hauled off into captivity in order for God to get his attention. You can stop the compromise. You can stop tampering with the integrity of your spiritual life. So I want to talk about the framework then finally for the little decisions that make the biggest difference. You have to embrace and maintain God's perspective of your life. David lost it. Drifted from it again, not because of one catastrophically bad decision, but a lot of little decisions that prepared him to make those catastrophic bad decisions in the face of temptation. 
David let go of the integrity of seeing the urgency to maintain the integrity of his spiritual life. He re-embraced it. Man after God's own heart, but not before consequences played out. Maybe that's what can be rescued. You keep going down the road and you can cross a line. You can cross a boundary. Yeah, you can repent on the other side of that boundary, but you've gone too far. Now the consequences are necessarily going to play out, and that happens all the time. And one of the great tests of genuine repentance in a person's life is whether or not you can manage the consequences of your sin before repentance, after you've repented. It was after David repented that the baby died. He's got to deal with that. Short-sighted David versus eternally minded the Apostle Paul. Remember what Ananias said? I'm going to show him that he's going to preach and be a missionary and speak to kings and to Gentiles. The pleasure for a moment and the loss of everything versus temperance and self-control and the reward of eternal life. Maybe that's what inspired Paul to write in 2 Corinthians 4. Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. Day by day. What does that mean? It means making right little decisions every day. Being renewed day by day in the framework of you being heavenly minded, maintaining the integrity of your spiritual life. So let's look at a very simple formula for making right decisions. First of all, is what you're choosing pleasing to God or not? Jesus said it in very simple terms. John 8, 29, he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. So is lying in bed instead of getting up and going to prayer meeting pleasing to God? Well, adultery is not pleasing to God, Pastor. And if I go back and buy a pack of cigarettes, that wouldn't be pleasing. If I went down on the street corner and got myself a needle and bought... Yeah, I know. I'm not talking about that, folks. Any moron can discern that's not pleasing. I'm talking about the little decisions you're making. Are the choices you make on a day-to-day basis... Are the things that you say, how you choose to interact with your husband and your wife in the face of offense... Whether or not to go to church, whether or not to pray, whether are the deceit, the little ones. Was it pleasing to God when David said, uh, I'm going to stay back in Jerusalem? It seems like it's inconsequential. What's the big deal? He's got Joab and others. Give the guy a break. You'll avoid lots of trouble in your life today and going forward when that beca- becomes the reference point of the decisions that you make. And those questions need to be asked when you're in the face of an offense and you're angry or you're feeling particularly weakened in terms of temptation. Is what I'm thinking, is what I'm about to do, 
Is what I'm going to say to my husband when he gets home from work, is that going to be pleasing to God? Secondly, can it be defined as sin? Sin is not always, as I said a moment ago, something that's in the extreme. Little things. What is the definition of sin? Falling short of the glory of God. Falling short of what his expectations are for your life. That's what sin is. James says, therefore, to him who knows to do good. David knew that he ought to be out to battle. David knew that he shouldn't lie with this woman. Knew that he shouldn't murder her husband. He would have known that. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not kill, David. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and doesn't do it, to him it is sin. And it doesn't qualify (coughs) what knows to do good is. It can be a little thing, a small decision, how you talk, how you act, how you think. And you need to establish a pattern in your life, a framework, a foundation, decisions that you enact every single day by default. You know what the problem is with a lot of people? You're making a choice when it shouldn't be a choice. Apparently in our text, at the time when kings go out to battle. There really isn't a choice to make. It's the time for David to be out to battle. But he made it a choice. You're making things a choice that should be a default. Whether or not you come to church. Why do you have to decide that Sunday morning? Or Sunday night or Wednesday night? Whether or not you're going to read your Bible. I view my Bible reading as a crucial part of my day, and a day doesn't pass when I don't read my Bible. It just wouldn't happen. It's not a decision. It's a default setting in my life. Prayer, spending time with God. There is so much good. When you make things a default, instead of messing around by making them day-to-day decisions. Don't you understand that choosing to go to prayer meeting every day is going to take you somewhere? Don't you get that? Don't you understand that being in every service, answering every altar call, finding a place, don't you understand that's going to take you somewhere long-term? It's not just about convenience or what's going on in my life right now at this moment, today. I loved what Josh Scribner said. I haven't missed a day of prayer in 20 years. If Josh was lying in bed, I'm not, I don't know what time he goes to prayer, if it's at 7, but he probably gets up the same time every morning, gets ready and goes to prayer, kisses his wife goodbye, and off he goes. So what if, Josh, one morning you didn't do that? After 20 years, your wife's waiting. Her eyes were about this big. (laughs) And then she says, Josh, uh, uh, it's 6.30. You're always up and out of the house. Oh, honey, don't worry about it. I'm just going to lie in this morning and sleep. I'll pray when I can get to it later. Uh, That would flip her out. And if he did it again the next day, she'd be on the phone to her pastor. (laughs) Something's off with Josh. Why? It's a default. 
With a lot of people, the wife wouldn't think twice because about half the time you stay home. You need to establish rhythms in your life, like a heartbeat. You need to establish rhythms in your life instead of making decisions out of things that should be a default. This should have been a default. At the time when kings go out to battle, David made that a choice instead of a default. Romans says, who will render to each one according to his deeds, eternal life to those who by patient continuance, by patient continuance in doing good. One after the other after the other. Righteous decisions that contribute to maintaining the integrity of your spiritual life. Keep choosing right, even when it's hard. And it's going to get hard sometimes. The Bible says, let us not grow weary while doing good. Maintaining the rhythm that is necessary. You can get very tired, very exhausting. You can have a bad day. You got to get up and keep that rhythmic heartbeat going that maintains your spiritual health. Tom Landry, one little decision that made a big difference. We've probably used this illustration to death, and that's the example of Chesley Sullenberger landing his plane in the Hudson River, if you could put that picture up. Two minutes after takeoff, the plane struck a flock of geese, knocking out both engines. He had precisely 208 seconds before that plane had to land or crash or do something. 208 seconds. He had about half of that, about 100 seconds, about a minute and a half, to decide what he's going to do. So his brain starts working, uh, and he starts calculating his options. Uh, I can turn and go back to LaGuardia. I can try to find the airport in New Jersey and land there. Uh, or I can drop this thing in the Hudson River. And after calculating, because he'd been a pilot at that point, uh, I think his first uh, uh, job was in around 1980. He'd been a pilot for decades. He's calculating uh, and processing uh, before he decides to try a landing in the Hudson River. No loss of life. Everybody survived. There they are. Someone wrote, how did the passengers get rescued before the plane sank into the hypothermic water? Why didn't everyone die upon impact? Why didn't the plane break apart? While there were certainly miraculous elements to the Sully story, much of the flight forensics has since revealed the true hero of the story, excellent decision-making. I love that. Pastor Warner, last night, him preaching that masterpiece of a sermon is a result of a lifetime of 50-plus years of excellent decision-making. Amen. You need to learn to make choices that will preserve your life, the lives of those around you, and facilitate your ability to walk into the destiny that God has for your life. I'd like every head bowed and every eye closed. Thank you so much for listening to the sermon podcast of the Virginia Beach Potter's House Church. Were you blessed by today's message? Let us know. Please leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts or on Podchaser. We'll be back next time with another life-changing word from heaven. God bless.